You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. There has never been a better time to go make a game. The first time you get to hold something you make in your hands, that's the best feeling. These are uh, Scott's book of great ideas. I think I'm up to about 30 now. We're in the middle of a tabletop renaissance. It's a $3 billion industry and every year it grows. My dad was always inspired by stories and that gave birth to the to the game. When I realized that okay, I can live from Qatar and my family can live from Qatar, it was um, yeah, freedom for me. There's conventions and awards and now independent designers can get into the action without game publishers because of the invention of things like crowdfunding. And I looked at that whole ecosystem and I thought, oh man, I want to play too. Originally our goal on Kickstarter was, okay, let's try to raise $10,000 That'll be our goal. We hit that in seven minutes. The worst thing you can do as a game designer is fall in love with one of your designs which do not work. I'm put in the unenviable position of people coming to me and saying, this is my grandchild. And I say, well, let me tell you about your grandchild. I would say we went through hundreds of versions of Exploding Kittens. And every time we test it out and find another three things that we messed up. You know, I'm like a 14, 15-year-old kid playing D&D with like some 50-year-old lady. Really colorful characters of all sexes, all backgrounds, all nationalities. There was always the expectation that as a young Pakistani girl, I would get married by the time I'm 20. That's why I'm always trying to create work that can make the world a better place. If it hadn't been board games, I'd been around the streets with a lot of other knuckleheads. You actually have to get as much creative output as you can out there. 99% of them are going to suck, but there's always little nuggets that you'll learn from until something good comes out. I'm hoping that with this game, someone else will be inspired to be like, I can break free too. The main thing that I want is to be in this industry. If the world doesn't play games, then we don't need any game designers anymore, and the world would be certainly a much sadder place. It's a lot of fun. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking to... Charles Murs, the director of Game Master, a 2020 documentary that is available now on most streaming platforms, all about the production, meaning, and making of games. I highly recommend this documentary. It is definitely worth a look, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Tell me a little bit more about you, and especially how you got into filmmaking. I grew up in Minneapolis, and that's actually where I where I am at the moment as we speak, coincidentally. Uh, but I grew up in Minneapolis. I got into filmmaking because, and this is interesting, I haven't really told this story. Uh, I went to film school in Minneapolis, at Minneapolis College. But when I went to film school, the head of the film and TV board came in to speak. And he actually told this story about how, you know, filmmaking, and this was, you know, around somewhere in the early 2000s, filmmaking was kind of like the garage band of the 90s. You know, everybody in the '90s had a garage band. You know, in their in their younger years, and it seemed like everybody around that time was trying to be a, a filmmaker, a director, or do something in film. That analogy it was right on the money because, as, and I think a lot of it had to do with the independent wave of the mid '90s, like Pulp Fiction, like Clerks. Those were two 
hugely influential movies for me personally. But you know, a lot of um, a lot of movies came before that for some people, and that's what they did before that. I know probably Sex Lies and Videotape is one that a lot of people point to and say, you know, why can't I do something like that? I, this seems achievable. And for me, the movie that I saw where afterwards I was like, oh my god, I'm pretty sure I can do that, was a movie called Chuck and Buck, um, which was ri- written by Mike White, not you, of course, but you know the other Mike White. <laughs> It was shot on the Canon XL1, so it was shot on video and then it was transferred to film, but it still looked good. It still looked like a movie, and it felt like a movie, but it was something that was so achievable about it, and I loved every second of it. This was while I was in film school, but you know, it was, it was movies like those that really got me into filmmaking. After you graduated, what were those initial gigs like? I mean, did you stick around uh, Minnesota, or did you move someplace else? So I stuck around Minnesota. I guess I had the idea of, you know, I'm going to try to write. Maybe I'll make an uh, an independent feature. I did one of those things, um, you know, the former. At some point, I kind of realized, hey, I gotta, I gotta move to LA because that's where things happen. I always say, if you wanna, if you wanna build yachts, you gotta go where yachts are built. And the proverbial yachts are built in Los Angeles, in this case. I went to Los Angeles to check it out. You know, I was potentially going to go to grad school. I looked at the uh, Peter Stark program, and they, you know, I applied to be in that over at USC. They promptly rejected me. <laughs> I went to, I think I toured AFI. I might have toured UCLA. I might not have. But while I was there, I had actually reconnected with a friend, um, one of my, well, one of my friend's fathers, who lived in Minnesota. I went to grade school and high school with this guy. And his dad was, uh, he worked in the film industry in Minnesota. And he was making a, um, a documentary about Willie Nelson. It was a Willie Nelson concert documentary. It has yet to be released. It was directed by Billy Bob Thornton. And we reconnected, talked about the old neighborhood, you know, talked about a bunch of different stuff. And he kind of said, "Hey, what are you doing? If you wanna, if you wanna stick around for a while, you can work on this documentary." And I was like, "Yeah, sure, I will." And you know, so I did that. That was kind of my first real thing in Los Angeles, as far as like working on an actual production. You know, in between then and and now, there was a lot of years of of not really doing anything like that. Between now and then, there was a lot of years of of trying to get different projects off the ground, and uh, you know, a lot of a lot of scripts that probably didn't go as far as I'd wanted them to, you know, just, just like a lot, I'm sure a lot of other people could relate to those statements, but the thing that is the most valuable and, you know, both on a personal level and a professional level was I spent those years meeting people, making relationships and, you know, I eventually made a movie with a bunch of them, but you know, all the dudes that I, all the people that I made a movie with, you know, the reason that we decided to make a movie together is because we were, hang- you know, we hung out all the time, you know, and these are some of my closest friends in, in L.A. and actually in life right now. So that was wonderful to, to have this experience with them. So, yeah, let's talk about Game Master. How did this subject first broach itself in your life? There's two waves of this story. You know, one starts in Minneapolis. I had a bunch of board game friends here and we played, you know, a bunch of European games and um, so my game group here was the one that introduced me to this new wave because prior to that I'd only played like you know Scrabble, Monopoly, you know all the American classics, and this new wave of games. I think the first one I played was Carcassonne. You know I absolutely loved it and it was it was 
more than what I thought a board game could be and more than, you know, I knew what it was at that time. And, you know, another game that played a really big role in, in the making of this movie is a game called Puerto Rico. And I feel like I played that a lot in Minnesota. And then I moved to LA, had met some new people. And after a few years, you know, I see Puerto Rico in the closet, I bring it out and we start playing that kind of like uh, I did in Minneapolis, except with LA people now. And, you know, we played that constantly. And then that kind of evolved into going to some of the local conventions. Actually, producer Jimmy Nguyen, who is producer on Game Master, who has also produced two documentaries prior to this, one called Showrunners and one called Barista, he, at at the convention, came across this guy selling a board game that he made and published himself. Um, I think it was called Parenthood, right? And the guy's like, hey, I made this game. You know, it's about being parents. I'm parents. And kind of gave him the pitch and Jim bought the game. I'm not sure that we ever played it. But <laughs> he saw that whole experience and was like, you know, there's there's something here. And he brought that to me and said, you know, I, I think we should do a documentary about this. And I was like, yeah, OK, I'm in. Let's do it. I'll also say that the all of the playing games and everything like that prior to that moment, it's important because it's like it. It both confirmed and also fueled a love that we had for the subject. And he knew from making two documentaries prior that you have to have that for your subject when you make a documentary because it is so it takes so long. Like no matter how long it takes, add a year to because that's how long it's going to take. It, documentaries, it is a marathon, and if you don't absolutely love and have a passion for your subject, you're going to run out of steam. So what year was this that you went to this convention? I think the year that we went to the convention, well, see, it's hard to say this because it's a local thing that happens three times a year. So we'd been multiple times. But I think when he bought the game was either 2015 or 2016. I'm sure you as a filmmaker, you have to know how to pitch. And that whole idea of the games, uh, you have a scene in Game Master that feels like going in front of execs and pitching an idea and having all of your paraphernalia, having that Hodorowski book of Dune or whatever, just all of those things where you're like, I can do this. So I'm sure that you must've felt a little bit of kinship with these game makers. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's when we got more and more into the game industry, it was remarkable how many similarities there were to, you know, the film industry. There are board game agents, you know, like, publishers are like distributors the way royalties work how you're just just a person with an idea or you know and you're just trying to get someone to help you turn that idea into reality there are so many similarities between independent filmmaking and board game design so yeah absolutely we did feel a kinship to these people probably one of the reasons that that I'm, i'm still close with a lot of the people i talked with in the documentary even that idea of the award that is given out that gets put on the box feels very much like, you know, winner of two Academy Awards or the Laurel Leafs or those kind of things. Absolutely. That award, you say, we see in the documentary. So the award you're talking about is called the Spiel des Jars. That award on your box means you're going to sell 200 to 250,000 copies, probably more. I know people go back and they say, oh, what won this year? Maybe I should pick that up. Not only does it give you a giant boost of sales up front, but it extends the life of your game potentially infinitely. I'm very curious where you found your protagonists because you have such just very distinct characters. And I know they're real people, but just 
characters in this film to find them at different points in their career as they go through this, their different struggles. I mean, it, it is such a wonderful cast of characters. The way that we found the main four people, you know, one of the bits of advice that I have give to, given to people who've asked me, like, how do you do this? I say, go to where the people are who are doing the thing that you, you want to talk about and ask some questions and listen things. And, you know, we went to some of the local conventions, you know, that's where the people are and poked around. And there we looked at the people who had a, a game that they'd made themselves and just talked to them about it. I have said, you know, I've, I asked everybody who I spoke with a couple questions, like two, at least two. And it was, tell me about your game and why did you make it? And, you know, based on what they said, uh, it, it, it turned into a longer conversation, usually over the phone. But I, I tried really hard to find examples of board games that came from within the person, within the designer. One of the goals of the movie was to kind of illustrate how board games could be a form of personal expression, you know, kind of like a song, a novel, uh, um, a film, you know. This is their way of expressing their experiences or ideas or, or whatever. And so if when we were talking to people, we looked specifically for people who had something that was personal to them, something that, you know, if it were made by another person, it would just be you know completely different. Um, the first guy we found of those four was actually Charlie Vink, the person who did trekking in the national parks. In the first edition, his father took all the pictures. His parents were visiting all the national parks. It seemed like something that was so of him, and so you know we had to put this guy in it. It, it was just clear. It was right away. I was like, I can't believe it. we found him on like the first day and I couldn't believe that we'd found him. I was like, geez, am I, am, am I missing something or is this, is this, is it going to be this easy the whole time? And I wasn't missing something, but it was also not that easy the whole time. I mean, with Jason Serrato and uh, Scott Rogers, they both live in the surrounding LA area. They're regular goers of strategic on chatting them up. It was clear that they also had a personal story and that their game came from within them you know obviously Nasher Balagamwala like it's just undeniable how much that game lives inside of her but the way we found her it wasn't by going to a convention the way we found her is actually really interesting and it was um you know one of the things that almost didn't happen with this documentary and it's so funny to put it in that perspective because it of because <laughs> she's, she's such a big part of it and for for to think about doing all these interviews for doing all the press for this to think about how this was really close to not happening like man i can't even i can't imagine what the film would be like without her but the story is that we were driving across country to interview a bunch of people for the for the movie and producer Wally Strauss, his parents live in Connecticut so we were stationed in Connecticut and i was you know working on a, at a, a coffee shop that day trying to go over questions for the upcoming week and, you know, looking over some of the stuff we already had. And I came across this article about Nasher Balagamwala. A week prior to this, I had said to producer Wally Strauss, you know, Wally, what we really need is a female POC who's got a new game, who has a personal story that is also good on camera, but I, I'm pretty sure that person doesn't exist. And then I saw her, you know, um, saw her in this article and, I said, okay. 
how do I get this person to be in the documentary? So I spent a couple hours trying to get her on the phone, emailing her, calling her, trying to just talk to her for a second. Because if I, if she turns me down, I don't want it to be because she ignored me. I want it to be in person. Finally, you know, I get her on the phone. I tell her who we are. I like, you're perfect for this. Please be in the movie. I convince her that I'm not a crazy person. Later, I find out she told me that I didn't do that great of a job of convincing her of that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I get her to agree to be in the documentary. And I say, great. And she said, but I should tell you something. And I go, okay. And she says, uh, my visa is expiring in two days, so I am leaving the country in two days. And I say, okay, where in the country are you? And she says, I'm in Brooklyn. And I said, I'm in Connecticut. I will see you tomorrow. And so we drove down the next day and interviewed her. You know, Then we left, and the next day she packed up her stuff and went back to Pakistan for a while. The flip side of that, the funny thing is, is that she later told me that she was not sure that we weren't there to rob her. It wasn't until we brought thousands upon thousands of dollars of camera equipment into her apartment that she's like, okay, maybe they're not here to rob me. I think this is okay. <laughs> it's very elaborate robbery, posing as a documentary crew. Gives a new ideas to some of some people out there. Yeah, she is critical to the documentary, but everything, it feels like you have created, to use a gaming metaphor, you've created this Jenga tower of these different people, and any piece that's missing could make it topple. I mean, the editing in this thing is fantastic. The way that you will cut with the, the rise and the fall of the action, just such a good job with that. Thanks. I have to give a lot of credit to the editor, John Barry integral piece you know he is uh you say it's a jenga tower he's a, he is at the bottom of the jenga tower he's you know a massive piece to this whole thing um i a lot of that he and i spent hours just talking about the philosophy of the movie kind of like the tone what was at the heart of it um you know so he's a big he's a big part of why the movie is what it is well, tell me a little bit more about your crew. Who, when you're driving down to Brooklyn, who are you taking with you and who are you working with the most? Wally Strauss, who's one of the producers on the movie, he and I and the, um, one of the people who shot on the film, director of photography, Michael Cox, the three of us drove across the U.S. And later, we, all the three of us would also drive across Germany and with the addition of Wally Strauss's wife, Kristen. The three of us and also you know, later the four of us spent a lot of time in close quarters together. Both of those experiences though, that's, I mean, for me, probably the most work and also the most fun for the entire project. You spend a lot of time talking about Kickstarter and even have a Kickstarter representative in there, uh, especially talking about exploding kittens. Did you end up having to crowdfund your own film? No, we didn't. So Jimmy, Jimmy Duane, who's one of the producers on the film, he, he the two movies that I, I said he worked on prior, both of those went through a Kickstarter. And we threw around the idea of doing a Kickstarter. And he was like, guys, I got to tell you, if we can figure out how to do this without a Kickstarter, I would, I would prefer not to go through that experience again. Not because he had a bad experience. Both of those movies got funded. But just because it is so, I think living in that 30 day period where you don't know if the movie's going to fund or not, is just so like gut wrenching. You know, every single day, probably up until like day 29 or 30, you wake up and you haven't met it yet because most of those most of those get met in the last like two or three days. 
So, you know, for at least 26, 27 days, you're like, oh my God, is this, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And then, you know, in his case, both times it did, but he kind of said, if he can, if he can avoid feeling like that for 26 days in a row, he probably would rather. And so we took his advice and we didn't do it. I really like that pie chart that you animate in there of what piece you actually get of the pie at the end of the day. That was very effective. Alan Lee, creator of Exploding Kittens, or co-creator, I should say. You know, he's spoken about it a lot. And one of the questions that comes up where, you know, it's like, what questions do you get asked the most? And he said, everyone thinks we made $9 million because that's how much Exploding Kittens raised. And, you know, he really broke down what the truth of the matter was, and I was like, well, you know, this is this is important to know. I think this is a, a misnomer for a lot of people. A lot of people think like, you know, you make this much money on Kickstarter and you're rich. But really, if you even break down the name of the website, you know, Kickstarter, it is to kickstart not just a product, but in his case, a company. And probably 100% of that money went into the creation of his company. And that's one of the reasons his company is going like very, very strong. I mean, it doesn't seem like it, but Exploding Kittens is a self-published game. I imagine that you're working the whole time while you're also doing this documentary. Is that a fair assumption? Not only is it a fair assumption, it is an accurate assumption. Uh, Yeah, I I had a day job. I worked at a couple restaurants during this whole process because I had to quit one in order to leave the country for three weeks. And they were like, maybe don't come back. And I said, okay, well, I guess I got to find another job. You know, it was funny because a friend of mine asked me, was it like, you know, uh, doing this documentary while working a day job? And I said, you know, it's it's a real interesting experience because yesterday I got to live out my dream of directing a feature film. And today I have to mop a floor. It's nice because it keeps you going and it keeps you humble. So tell me about the first time that you get to see the finished product with an audience. What was that like and when was that? So we are in an interesting time because I saw a rough cut with an audience. It happened at 10 a.m. on like a Saturday. And it went okay, but I think if we had shown them the same movie at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., it probably would have went better because I think everybody was tired and not in the mood to watch a documentary at that time. I did, however, have a lot of one-on-one conversations with a lot of the people at that uh, at that screening, anybody who was willing to talk to me, you know, I talked to them for a while and, and just kind of picked their brain and how they felt about certain things. And I got a lot of valuable information from that because of the situation that we're in in the world. That is the only time that I've ever seen it with an audience, and so it's not even the final cut. I hope to in the future, but that's kind of unknown at the moment. So, did you do like? festivals or anything or did you just say that's it straight to like amazon streaming we didn't do any festivals we we entered a couple and we got a nice rejection letter from a few of them you know i found out as making this and even with trying to get a um, a distributor that people think of documentary as a genre but there's lots of sub genres within you know the genre of documentary sports documentaries competition documentaries biopics or bio-documentaries should say, true crime, that's a very popular one. And it wasn't about how good the documentary was. It was a lot of it was about like what subgenre such documentary fit into. And so we didn't really have a lot of luck with the festival circuit. And then at a certain point, we had an offer and, you know, offer with Gravitas and uh, we took it. And so we just, you know, we never went the festival route. 
of all the games that you probably saw and played throughout the this experience, what was the most fun for you? So games, just as much as the game itself, it is about enhancing the people that you play with. Uh, when we interviewed Klaus Teuber, the creator of Settlers of Catan, he was kind enough to give me a board game that I had never played before, that he had won the Game of the Year award for, which is called Hoity Toity. We were on a ferry, an overnight ferry, from Sweden to Germany, and me and producer Wally Schross, director of photography Mike Cox, and Wally's wife Kristen, we stayed up on this on this ferry in the common area playing this board game until like very late at night. And I've talked to everybody since. We, you know, all look back at that night and just like how fun the experience was and just we were just in this moment of of free time and even though we played it into the wee hours of the night, everybody had a lot of energy and it was just it it was uh it was a good time. You know, just as much as it is about the game that you're playing, it is about the people that you're playing with. So what's next for you? What are you working on now? I've got a lot of various projects in different stages of development. Some are narrative, some are non-narrative, potentially a show being kicked around. Unfortunately, so many of these things are just in such, such beginning stages that like, I, I can't really talk about them a lot. You know, I know that's a, that's a terrible answer. I wish I could say, you know, next, you know, starting production on the next thing in, you know, as soon as, no, I guess I wouldn't be able to at this point because of everything that's going on in the world. But, you know, as soon as it lets up, but I, we're not even at that stage yet. So to talk about anything, it's just too early to talk about anything. Charles Mers, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. It's been wonderful for me, too. Thank you. Stay!